Well, good morning, Harvest. Good morning. So good to see you and to worship our Lord and Savior with you this morning. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 48, so please get your Bibles open to Isaiah 48. We're going to be dealing with verses 9 to 11, Isaiah 48, 9 to 11. If last week, if you were here, and I hope you were, we dealt with the story of redemption. We looked from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and we saw what God did through his people, the promises he made, how he called Abraham, how he sacrificed Christ for our sins, and what he is going to do all the way up to the day of the Lord. And today... um, We are going to be looking at God's glory in redemption. So if last week was the plan of redemption, seeing God's plan, today is the purpose of redemption. Last week we saw his plan as he laid it out, and today we see why he did that. Why did he have this redemptive plan? Why did God save anyone? Well, we see that it is all for his glory. So would you please stand with me? We're going to read God's word. Isaiah 48, chapter 48, verse 9 to 11. It says this, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning. God, we come before you this morning, gathered as your church, seeking your face. God, seeking that you would be glorified in our lives. God, seeking, oh God, that we would not get in the way of your glory. God, from your word today, God, would you teach us, Lord, would you show us how magnificent you are. Lord, would you show us your glory that we may worship you and worship you more. God, we love you and we need you. Lord, send your Holy Spirit. God, meet with us now. Teach us from your word. I pray this all in the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may take your seats. I'm not sure if you noticed it, but in our text, God seemed to be really concerned about one thing. Did you see it? Did you see it? Six times he mentions this. He says here, he says, for my name's sake. He says, for the sake of my praise. He goes on to say, for my own sake, for my own sake. He doesn't stutter there. He says it twice for emphasis. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God seems really pumped up. He seems really excited about his own glory. And let me tell you this. The best thing you can do is be excited about what God is excited about. And this is why we need to really see what God is saying here today. God has said six times in three verses that he has a zeal and a passion for his glory. We need to have a zeal and a passion for God's glory. Let's set the context of this passage. What's going on in Isaiah? Um, this was written, um, we can see in Isaiah chapter 1, he kind of gives the timeline. It says that he was, it was written in the days of Uzziah, uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. So this is when Isaiah is writing this. And this part of the book, from chapters 40 to 66, he's really writing about um, the Babylonian captivity. Remember, the Israelites were taken into captivity, and they were there for a number of years, and Isaiah is writing about this time. In fact, in chapter 44 of Isaiah, he calls out King Cyrus, and he tells him to let the captives free and to rebuild their city. The amazing part about that is, 
King Cyrus listens to Isaiah's writing. And the more amazing part about that is that that is written 150 years before King Cyrus was the king of Babylon. Isaiah writes this 150 years before he was the king. It was written before he was born, and he calls him out by name. But that's not our text today, but just sets the scene for where we're at. And now Isaiah continues his writing, and God lays out for us what he is doing and why he is doing it. We come to Isaiah 48, and we see the purpose of God's working. We see the purpose of his redemptive plan. It's all about God's glory. It's all about God's glory. It always has been, it always will be, and it is definitely right now. But before we begin into our text, we need to really define, we need to look at what is God's glory. What does that mean? We can say the word a lot of times, but what does it really mean? What is, what is God's glory? Well, John Piper explained it really well. I'm not going to try to explain it better than him, so I will use his analogy he says that redemption is impossible, or sorry, glory is impossible to explain. So that's all we got. <laughs> he, says, he says, glory is kind of like the word beauty and not like the word basketball. All right, so if someone came up to you and asked you, hey, could you describe to me basketball? You wouldn't have much trouble, I don't think. You would say, well, it's a ball, it's about 10 inches in diameter, and it's, you know, leather or rubber, and you bounce that ball while you walk, and you shoot it in a hoop, which used to be called a basket, and that's why it's called basketball, and, and you'd explain the rules to them, and they'd have a pretty good idea of what basketball is. They would be able to tell it between soccer and football very easily. But when you ask someone to describe what beauty is, they might have a little bit more trouble. How do you describe beauty? It's not something that our language allows us to describe well in words or the definition of it. But it's something that you can point out, right? It's something that you can see. And so you say, hey, could you describe beauty to me? You'd be like, um, there it is. Uh, uh, there it is. Um, oh, over here, that's, that's what beautiful is. And then you start to get an idea of beauty. Well, glory is in the same category. Glory is kind of just like that. It, it, it can't really be defined, but we can see it. We can see God's glory. We can see it on display. And so I'm going to take a crack at it to give a definition for glory, and then we'll see maybe where we can see it. But let's take a crack at it, okay? If I were to define glory, I would define it like this. God's glory is his holiness and perfection on display for all to see. God's glory is his holiness and his perfection on display for all to see. His glory pours out of his character. His glory is what we see when he acts. It cannot be restrained, and God has such a zeal for his glory. See, we could look at creation, and we could say, oh, wow, it's amazing how everything's so fine-tuned, and, and, and there's seasons just because the earth is tilted the right way, and, and I look at nature, and you could say, yes, that's God's glory. You, you could look at a marriage that's been torn apart and, and they've been reconciled back together and there's this love between a husband and wife and you could say, that's God's glory on display. Have you ever been in the, the, the birthing room and you hear the baby's first cry? It's God's glory. It's God's glory as he brings about life. As we see good character, as it reflects God's perfect character, we see his glory as we help the needy. We see the glory of God in those 
action. Psalms 19.1 say that the heavens are telling of the glory of God. What does this mean? What does it mean that the heavens are telling of the glory of God? It means that the sky is shouting at us. God is great. God is great. Look at all his marvelous deeds. Look at his creation. Look what he has done. God is great. And we can marvel in the glory of God. We see his glory when our prayers are answered. Sometimes people say, well, that's, a, that's so lucky that happened. You're like, no, 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 no. It's not lucky. God was working. I was praying for this, and God worked. I never thought this was possible, but God completed it. God got it done. And in your prayers being answered, as he guides you and strengthens you and gives you uh, wisdom in your situations, it's God's glory on display. That is God's glory. It's all about God's glory on display in the entire plan of redemption. You see, God has such a zeal for his glory. It has to be shown. And so the great plan of redemption is God's holiness. It's his character. It's his creativity. It's his love on display. Redemptive plan is completely his glory. And so this leads us to our first point. God's glory is the purpose of the redemptive plan. God's glory is the purpose of the redemptive plan. Remember, we saw the the plan itself, but why does it happen? What's the foundation it sits on? It happens because of God's zeal for his glory. So why don't we take a quick look through Scripture, because in our text today it's pretty clear, but I want to show you that all the way through Scripture, all the way through a ton, a ton of verses, and we're only hitting the tip of the iceberg here, God shows his zeal for his glory in the redemptive plan. So let's start at creation and go all the way back, or go all the way forward to Christ's return. Check this out. In Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, we see why we are created. Why we are created. It says this, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. You are created for God's glory. That is the foundation. That is the purpose. In Jeremiah 13, 11, we see why God called Israel. You remember God called um, Abraham in in Genesis 12, and then he made his people Israel. We see why he did that in the first place. What was the purpose of him doing it? It says this, I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. In Psalm 106, 7 and 8, we see why God saved Israel out of Egypt. Why did he do that? Why did he do it? Is it because he loved them? For sure. But what was the foundation in calling them out and saving them from Egypt? It says this in Psalm 106, 7 and 8. It says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works, but 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 rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea, that you saved them for his name's sake, that he he might make known his mighty power. God is so concerned, he is so zealous for his glory to be on display. In Ezekiel 20, 14, we see why God spared Israel in the wilderness. Remember, after they come out of Egypt, they're in the wilderness for 40 years. Why did God save them even though they acted so treacherously against him? It says this in Ezekiel 20, 14, it says, I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I have brought them out. God's glory is the foundation of their salvation. 
In 1 Samuel 12, 20 and 22, we see why God did not forsake his people. It says, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet you do not, do not turn aside from following the Lord, for the Lord will not forsake his people. Why will he not forsake his people? For his great name's sake, it says. In Ezekiel 36, we see why God brought his people out of captivity. It says this, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, and the nations will know that I am the Lord. He acts for his glory. John 12, 27 and 28, we see the reason, the foundational reason why Jesus died on the cross. Was it to save us? Yes. But what was the foundational reason? Jesus on the cross in John 12, 27 and 28, it says this, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. It's all about God's glory. Isaiah 43, 25, we see why God even forgives us of our sin. Is it because we deserve it? No. No, no, no. It's because of God's glory. Look at what it says. It says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Again, in Psalm 25, 11, it says, For your own name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. In John 16, 14, we find out the purpose of the work of the Holy Spirit. Do we think that the Holy Spirit is working just for us or just because of us? No, no, no. It helps, he helps us for sure, but it says this in John 16, 14, it says, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. God is seeking his glory in the work of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter 4, 11, we see why we are to serve one another. We, why we are to serve the church. 1 Peter 4.11 says, Whoever serves, let him do it as one who serves by the strength which God supplies. Why? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And finally, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 9 and 10, we see why Jesus is coming back. Why is Jesus coming back? It says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. You see, you see, it's all about God's glory all through Scripture. God does not conceal his zeal for his glory. Everything he does, the reason why he acts, the reason why we are here today is because God has a zeal for his glory. It's all about God's glory. From Genesis to Revelations, he does not give an apology for that. It's all about his glory. This is why he acts. This is why he moves. And in our text today, in Isaiah 48, we might see it more clearly than any given verse in all of Scripture. Six times, God gives six massive hammer blows to the idea of man-centered salvation. He says, it's for my name's sake. It's for the sake of my praise. For my own sake. For my own sake. 
Why should my name be profaned? My glory. It's all about him. It's all about his glory. And if God is so zealous for his glory, if God knows that this is best, then we should be zealous for God's glory. Then we should be seeking to glorify him in every, situ- in every situation, in all that we do. All of the redemptive story, of course, is about God's glory. And in our text today, he gets a little more specific. We see two parts of the redemptive story for us today. And the purpose of these is God's glory. So the second point is this. God's glory is the purpose of our salvation. God's glory is the purpose of our salvation. Although salvation benefits us and 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 and. and it helps us, of course, we are saved. The, the ultimate purpose is that God would be glorified. If we think that our salvation is about just us, we are sadly, sadly mistaken. Look at the text. Look at the text in verse 9. It says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. He restrains his anger from us. He, he does not give it to us. He defers it so that we won't be cut off. Why? For his namesake, for the sake of his praise. What does this mean? What does this mean? The Lord is deferring and restraining his anger towards the Israelites at this time because they would not be able to take it. They could not handle the anger of the Lord. And he's deferring his anger to be put on Jesus Christ on the cross. If he were to pour out his anger on Israel, they would be completely wiped out and he would not fulfill his promise. You see, God's glory is directly linked to the fulfillment of his promise. God's glory is directly linked to the fulfillment of his promise. He will do what he says he will do. If he didn't do what he says he will do, then he would not be glorified. But God had promised them, God had promised them that he would bring a Messiah, that through them would come the Savior of the world, that he would save his people. And so how can he go back on his word? No, 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 that would give his name a bad reputation. And he's too zealous for his glory to let that happen. And so for his name's sake, he defers his anger. For the sake of his praise, he restrains it for us. His anger would be poured out on Christ on the cross. This really should be, this really, really should be a massive, massive encouragement to us. And it should cause us to worship. You think about God's glory and it should cause us to worship him. Because if it wasn't for his glory, his zeal for his glory, we would not be saved. And I see three things here. It's, it's the initiation of salvation, it's the assurance or uh, the continuation of our salvation, and evangelism. We should be encouraged in all of these things. Why? Because the initiation of our salvation, if it was left up to us, if it was because of us, it would never happen. It would never happen. There's no reason for God to save us apart from the fulfillment of His promise. We are sinners. We have sinned against a holy God. And so if he did not promise to save us, why would he save us? It makes more sense for him to pour out his anger. But no, but no, he loved us. He loved us. Why? Because he promised to do so. We learn in scripture that he has written your name in the Lamb's book of life before the foundations of the world. 
And so how could a holy God who has written your name, if you were saved in Jesus Christ, has written your name before the foundations of the world, before time even started, how could he not fulfill his promise to save you? It's his glory on display. His glory is on the line, and he will not allow it to be defamed. So not only is our salvation initiated by God, but it is sustained by God. It is sustained by God. He starts the salvation and he finishes it. Could you imagine how, how horrifying that is if your salvation and the continuation of your salvation was up to you? If it was up to me? I would not be saved right now. I would be done. Because without his working, without him sustaining me, I would be left alone. He sustains me because he's made a promise. He sustains me because he's loved me. He's loved me because he promised. He's promised because he will fulfill it, and he fulfills his promise, which gives him the glory. Are you tracking with that? The reason you are sustained is because God has promised that he will complete your salvation. This should be a massive encouragement to us, because if it was left to us, it would not be finished. And it should cause us to worship, oh God, thank you so much for not leaving this up to me. Thank you, oh God, that it is not because of my actions I am sustained in you, but because of your zeal for your glory, that no one could say God wasn't able to do it. He will sustain you. He will sustain you. He loves you too much to let you go. He loves his glory too much to let you go. He will maintain his glory and his praise, and we will remain in Christ. Praise the Lord. That should cause us to worship. Our salvation rests on the foundation of God's glory. If God's glory doesn't exist, we are no longer saved. But this brings up the question, have we made our salvation about us? Do we live our lives as if salvation was just for me? I think a great indication of this, and maybe the best indication of this, is your prayer life. Is your prayer life. What does your prayer life look like? It's a great indication of this. And the first question, thinking about our prayer life, is this. Do you pray? Do you pray? Is prayer a constant in your life? Because if it's not, what you're saying is, God, I don't need you to guide me. God, I don't need you to sustain me. Lord, I have this on my own. Your silence in prayer is a silent protest against the glory of God. And this is why the scripture implores us to pray without ceasing. Why? Why? Because we need it, and God is most glorified in us as we depend on him. Do you pray? Do you pray? Do you approach God as if you are owed something? And secondly, if you do pray, what are your prayers like? And what is your attitude in prayer? What is your attitude in prayer? Maybe you say, I pray constantly. But what are your prayers like? What are my prayers like? What is my attitude in prayer? Do I really go to the Father and, and say, God, you owe me this? You know, I... I've been praying a long time. Uh, Lord, I, I've been reading my Bible. God, I, I raise, I'm raising my kids in the Lord. Lord, I go to church, and now you owe me this one. Do we go to the Lord and make it about us? 
is the majority of our prayers asking for things for us? Is the majority of our prayers asking for what we need or what we want? And I want to just be very crystal clear on this point. Don't take me out of context here. A prayer asking for your needs is a good prayer. The Lord asks us to come to him and ask for our needs. Matthew 7, 7, ask, seek, knock. Um, God says that um, he's a good father who loves to give good things to his children. Is it bad that you go to the father and ask for your needs? No, not at all, not at all. But is that what consumes your entire prayer life? Is that everything? If you were to put a percentage next to it, what is that percentage of your prayer? The majority of our prayer, I think, should be in thankfulness to God. Seeking God, Lord, would you show me more of yourself? Lord, thank you, O God, for what you have done. Lord, thank you, O God, for what you are doing. Thank you, O God, for what you have promised to do. Lord, show me your glory. Show me yourself. Show me your character, God. Make me more like you. Lord, would you be glorified in my life? Lord, would you use me for your glory and your glory alone? Do we attribute to him all the credit that he is due in our prayers? Or would he jump so quickly to what we need that day? Are you willing in your prayer as you ask for wisdom, as you ask for help in your situation, are you willing that God might turn your life upside down? And are you willing to follow him in that? Or do you expect that God will work things out the way you have planned them? What does your prayer life look like? Again, again, loved ones, loved ones, this should be a massive encouragement to us. And this should cause us to worship. If you really just consider this theology, if you really consider what God is doing here, this should cause us to worship him more. This should cause us um, to be greatly encouraged. Because God's glory is on the line, because God's glory is on the line, he will never let you go. He will never let you go. He sustains you. Can we throw out this terrible theology that has been going through the church, um, Big C Church, for many years that you can lose your salvation? No, you can't. Why? Is it because of you? No, we're all sinners. It's because God's glory is on stake. Because God's glory is on the line and his zealousness for his glory is is so supreme that he will not let you go. He will hold on to you forever. You are his. He has made you his and he will not let you go. But this should be also a massive encouragement for us in evangelism. The thought that it is God who saves, it's it's the thought that because of his promise, because of what he said he will do, he will save. That should give us a massive boost in sharing the gospel. Could you imagine if sharing the gospel and the results of you sharing it were up to you? That's terrifying. That is terrifying to think that God has called you to do something that is literally impossible and to carry the burden and the weight of someone not coming to Christ. No, no, no. Our job is to share the gospel, and it's God's job to save. And if you have God as your quarterback, if you have God behind you, um, you can do anything. Because God will save that person who you've been praying for for two years and hasn't shown any sight of any interest in church or the Bible. 
God can take the most wicked heart and, and soften it. God can open up people's eyes to the beauty of his son. We can't. We can't. We can just present what he has said. This is what he says. Will God work? And that should give us great confidence in evangelism because we have God doing the work. We have God doing the work. Do you think that a preacher can come up here and convince someone of the gospel? No. 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 I can present it. I can present it. But if God does not open your eyes, nothing will be done. And so we, res- we rest in God's grace in this, and we rest knowing that he will fulfill his promise. He will fulfill his promise. Let your confidence in sharing the gospel be in God's glory. Let your confidence be that God will do the work. So God's, excuse me, God's glory is the purpose of redemption, the redemptive plan. It's the purpose of our salvation. And God's glory, of course, is the purpose of our sanctification. It's the purpose of our sanctification. Let's look at verse 10. It says this, Behold, I have refined you. So we move from um, his anger being poured out, which is our salvation. And in verse 10, we move into this refinement. It says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. So we move from salvation, and now we move into sanctification. God's refinement, setting us apart, making us holy. I know some of you are feeling this right now when when you read words like the furnace of affliction, you think, that's what I'm going through right now. Being in the furnace of affliction seems to be my life. Why? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me right now? But let's deconstruct this text just a little bit. What does it mean to be refined, but not as silver? What does that mean? What does that mean? And maybe some of you are, what's going, what went off in my head reading this was, doesn't the Bible say we will be refined as silver? Isn't that a little confusing? He says here we're not refined as silver, but then he says we are refined as silver. And you're right, it does say that. In Malachi 3, verse 3, it says, He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi, that's the priesthood, and we are made priesthood now under Jesus. It says, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So what is God saying here? Well, check out the tense of uh, the passage. Check out the tense that he speaks in. In Malachi, he's talking about what he will do. He's talking about what he will do in the future. He will refine us like gold. And in Isaiah, he's talking about the present tense at that time. He's saying, I will refine you, but not as silver. Do you guys know how silver is refined? Do you know that process? That'd be helpful, eh? Have you ever watched a Discovery show on this or something? Or has another pastor explained it to you? It's a, lot, it's a big topic in Scripture. How is silver refined? How is silver refined? refined. What they do is they take the raw silver that's taken from the earth and they heat it up to a really high temperature and it melts. And what happens is the impurities, which are called dross, the dross is removed from the silver and then you're left with pure silver. And so this is why he says the furnace of affliction. He's literally, you put the silver in a furnace and then it removes all of the impurities away from the silver. And you're left with pure silver. The problem with this for the Israelites at this time is that they are on the other side of the cross. They don't have the saving work of Jesus Christ in their life yet. 
Jesus has not taken their sin, and so if God were to refine them, the problem is, is that they are completely dross. There would be nothing left. There's nothing good in them. Christ has not come yet. And so he refines them in a way, but not as silver. He refines them in the furnace of affliction. But now that we are saved in Christ, now that our sins have been forgiven, now that we are justified, we are made righteous before God, God can refine us one day as silver. But I don't know about you, but for me, there's still sin in my life. God is still working on me. I'm a massive work in progress. And maybe you are too. And so in a way, we are like the Israelites, that there is still dross in our lives. And God has not yet refined us perfectly as silver. We're in this process of refinement. We're in the furnace. We're going through the heat to be refined. And so why does God do this? Because if you look at the text, he's saying that he is doing this for his own sake. He is doing this for his glory. He is saving us. He is sanctifying us for his glory. He's putting us in the furnace of affliction for his glory. And so you have to ask yourself this question, does it bother me that God refines me for his glory? Does it bother me that through pain and hardship in my life, God gets glory? In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, it says actually that the will of God is your sanctification. That the will of God is that you would be refined. That the will of God is that you would go through trial. Through hardship that God either allows or he puts in our lives, he is glorified and we will be refined. The old saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, comes to mind. But why is this okay? Why is it okay for God to get glory in our suffering? Why is it for his namesake? It's, this is it. This is the reason. It's because it's actually the most loving thing he could possibly do for us. Hebrews chapter 12, 7 through 11 um, speaks of this really well. And so I'm going to read this for you. Hebrews 12, 7 to 11 says this. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, and it's what seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Do you see? Do you see? The most loving thing that God can do in your life is discipline you. The most loving thing that God can do is refine you. The most loving thing that God can do is put you through the furnace of affliction. We go through trials because he is disciplining us. He is disciplining us because he loves us. He loves us because he promised he would. And in the fulfillment of his promise, he is glorified. The foundation of all of our sanctification is in the zeal of his glory. 
He is glorified. We are made holy. It's a win-win situation. It's a win-win situation for all involved. So let's get practical here. Let's get real practical here and ask this question. What is your goal in your sanctification? What is your goal in your sanctification? Is it ease in this life and that God would give you relief from all your earthly suffering? Or is it that God would be glorified in your life no matter what the cost? Is your goal in your sanctification and your working out of the rest of your life as a believer in Jesus Christ, is it that God would ease you of your suffering? Is it that God would give you relief? Or is it that he would be glorified no matter the cost? Are you willing to suffer so that God gets glory? Are you willing to suffer so that God gets glory? Let me submit to you that it is well worth it and that the alternative is devastating. The alternative is devastating. If we are not going through trial um, because of God, then that means we are outside of God's love, which means we are not saved, which means we will spend an eternity apart from his glory. Are you willing to suffer so that God gets the glory. Sometimes we suffer by resisting temptation. Sometimes you say, it's too hard, I can't stop sinning. But really, we need to suffer. We need to suffer through our flesh to resist temptation. And let me submit to you that the suffering from resisting sin is far less than the suffering from giving in to sin. This is what is best for us. Because our suffering causes us to be more dependent on God. And as we are more dependent on God, we glorify him. And as he is glorified, he continues to love us. Do you remember that verse in Romans 8, 28? It gives me great encouragement all the time. It's such a popular verse. And I think it's because we see that through our trials, there is purpose. Through our testing, there is purpose. All the pain that we're going through, there is purpose. God is working Romans 8.28 says, For those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Do you see? God works all things, all things, all things. He doesn't leave anything out. He says all things. Go and study that word for yourself in the Greek. It means all things. It means every good day, every bad day, every sinful decision you've made, every sinful decision that someone else has made against you, every natural disaster, everything that happens, everything that will happen, everything that has happened. God is taking all of that and he's working it together for your good. He's working it together for your good if you're called according to his purposes. Be encouraged that your suffering is not wasted Be encouraged that your suffering will not yield any fruit or no fruit. Your suffering will one day prove for God's glory and for your good. And so this should encourage us. Right now, some of you are deep in problems, deep in hardship. And what you can rest on is the promise of God that he will not forsake you, that he will not leave you, and that he will take what is even evil and what is disgusting and what is terrible and what is painful and he will use it for your good and for his glory. Be encouraged. 
be encouraged. I've seen that in my own life. I've seen that in my own life. When I was, when I was 18, I was a wreck. I was a wreck. I was, I was brought up in a Christian home. Um, when I was six, I gave my life to the Lord. When I was 11, I was baptized. I used to bring all my friends to youth group. I used to love it. And when I was around 18, I just fell off the tracks. I fell off the tracks. I went away to school. I fell off the tracks. I was devastated. I went through all of the things in this world to please myself. I sought affection in the wrong places. I sought pleasure in the wrong places. I did everything to run away from God. In fact, I would even use his word to justify my sin. I would twist it. It was evil, it was wrong, and it was disgusting. But God used it. But God used it. See, God loved me too much. God loved me too much to allow me to stay there forever. Why? Is it because I deserved it? No. It's because of his glory. It's because of his glory. He let me get depressed. He let me fall away until I was so desperate. I was so sad. I was so alone that I knew this world, what it had promised me, was a lie. And then I depended on God. And I went through that hardship. I went through that trial. And I know it's nothing compared to the things that some of you have gone through. But I went through that and God allowed it to happen so that I would turn to him. I'm so stubborn that it took all of that for me to see God's glory. But God will use every situation for his glory. He will work all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. It's all about God's glory. From beginning to end, it's all of redemption, our salvation, and our sanctification. God will be glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you, O Lord, for your goodness to us. O Lord, that you would save us, Lord, that you would redeem us, O oh God, that you would continually sustain us, Lord, that you would put us through trials, O oh Lord. And sometimes we think, why me? Why is this happening? But God, the truth is, is that you are working these things together for your glory and for our good. Lord, you are king. You are ruler over all things. God, the things we are worried about, you're not worried about. Lord, and the, and the things that we face today will seem like nothing as we rejoice with you in eternity forever. Lord, we thank you, God, for your grace. We thank you, O oh Lord, for the foundation of your glory because without your glory, everything else falls apart. So, Lord, would we glorify you. Lord, would we glorify you in your holy name as you are due all praise, all worship, Oh, Lord, and because of that, oh, God, as we satisfy ourselves in you, as we desire you, oh, Lord, as we are dependent on you, would you be glorified in our lives, and would you work things together for our good? Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.